0: Father, uh, Dr. Russell Allen, uh, was the pastor here uh, in the uh, 70s. Uh, So without further ado, I'd like to invite uh, Dr. Allen up. No, not necessary. Two uh, apologies as I start, or one apology. I'm sort of suffering from a little bit of a head cold, and therefore my voice is not what it should be. Um, And if I have to stop and cough, I'm gonna apologize now for having to do that. So bear with me, I'm not contagious. I already had a COVID test this week, I'm fine. Uh, So uh, there's my first apology. Second thing I'd like to say is that I'm really excited about your pastor. I've known your pastor for probably now 15 years and more or less, he's really a good guy. And I'm really excited that he's here and that he's your pastor. So I wanna commend you uh, for having him And uh, my job this morning is to make you happy that he'll be here next week preaching. So um, if you bear with me on those two things, then then we'll go from there. Well, thank you for allowing me to come and uh, be with you this morning. It's always a pleasure uh, to do so, uh, especially since this church had such a major impact on my formative years. Uh, Sometimes you forget those things until you've had an opportunity to reflect upon them and see them in a different light that only age and experience can uh, bring. Sometimes you look back at all the things uh, that you messed up uh, and you wonder how you survived. Uh, sometimes you look back and see how you have been impacted by the lives of other people, and then you realize that you too may have had an influence on others, regardless of the place or position in life that you find yourself. So you really see that when you attend a memorial service and you listen to all the great memories that people had of the deceased. I've been to a few of those lately, and I continue to remind myself that if you don't attend your friend's funerals, they won't attend yours. So uh, that provides uh, a unique perspective uh, on life. Now your perspective on life uh, is obviously related to the way that you view something. Uh, the term literally suggests looking through or seeing clearly. When you view life through perspective lenses, you have the capacity to see things in their true relations or their relative importance. Uh, you see the big picture. You're able to dis- distinguish the incidental from the essential, the temporary from the eternal, the partial from the whole, the f- trees from the forest. Now this morning I'd like to, us uh, to look at a biblical perspective on life, And I'm gonna do that from the advantage point of our Lord Jesus Christ, because it's easy to get caught up in our lives and lose, I believe, a proper perspective on life. So our text for today is Hebrews chapter 12 and verse three. Turn with me there in your Bibles or your electronic devices. Or in this one verse, the writer of the book of Hebrews encourages us to get a fresh perspective of Christ, to consider all that he has suffered and endured. And when we do that, I think we'll be uplifted and strengthened for the trials and the tasks that lay before us. And so just after the writer of Hebrews listed a lot of men and women whose unwavering faith was instrumental in their lives in chapter 11, we read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12, Therefore, grow weary, or faint-hearted. And I'm reading that from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> so, three simple truths appear in verse 3. One is consider Christ. Second, stay strong. And third, don't despair. So we'll look at each one of those from the perspective of Jesus during his life here on earth. So, consider Christ. The writer of Hebrews begins verse 3 with a command. It's an imperative. He says, consider him well, consider whom? Well, consider Jesus. He's already told us in verse 2 that we're to fix our eyes on Jesus because he did finish the course of life successfully, and he's now enjoying the rewards of having won the race. Jesus is our hero. He had the right perspective on life for several reasons. First of all, he saw the joy that was set before him. That's what it says in verse 2. Uh, And with that in mind, the joy that was set before him, he was able to endure the cross, despise the shame that was thrust at him, and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. Having the right perspective enabled Jesus to get through some very difficult times. Now it's been suggested that having a biblical perspective of the future, it adds a breath of fresh air to the otherwise suffocating demands of life. It opens new dimensions that enable us to cope with the predictable and survive the emergency. It eases the tyranny of the urgent, and it provides consolation in the midst of the urgency of life. Without it, our lives might be mediocre, mundane, miserable, and just plain old boring. So can you see far enough in the future to know that it all ends well? Were you stuck in the middle and you can't see the forest because of all the trees? Someone said, it'll all work out in the end, and if it isn't working out, it isn't the end yet. That's a good thought. Jesus had this joyful perspective of life because he stayed above his circumstances, in that he endured the worst of circumstances, a death on a cross that he did not deserve to die. Now, Jesus knew all about the cross. It was his appointed death. He was to die. He didn't deserve it. But it was part of God's plan for salvation, and it was pivotal in the history of the world. And he knew that he was going to have to suffer. He was going to have to experience pain and physical death in order to pay the price of our sins, in order to provide salvation, redemption for sinners such as you and me. He endured the cross because he had the proper perspective on life. He saw the bigger picture. He didn't have to do it, by the way. He was God. He didn't have to suffer on the cross, but he did it willingly. Now you and I may not have to suffer for the sake of the gospel, yet there are many who have and who are and who will suffer. It's been reported that each year there are some 5,000 Christians who will die because of their faith. And that number might be low because it's hard to get some information from African countries, from Iran, from North Korea, from China, from Russia it's been estimated that more than 43 million Christians have been killed for their faith. It makes us, believers in Jesus Christ, the most persecuted people in the history of the world. But not all of us will have to suffer death or physical harm as Jesus did, or as these 5,000 others have each year. Now, your circumstances might be not very pleasant, but maybe they are. Regardless, they're temporary. We're visitors in a foreign land. As Christians, we're aliens here. Heaven is our home, and we're just passing through. As we've already heard this morning, our circumstances will change, and they may change off us. But seeing the joy that is awaiting for us in our heavenly home should enable us to endure whatever circumstances in which we find ourselves. And that's what we should have. It's the same attitude as the Apostle Paul had when he wrote in Philippians 4. He said, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am, because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So consider Christ. He had the right perspective on life because he saw the joy that was set before him. He stayed above his circumstances, and he endured the people he came to serve. Does that sound strange to you? Can enduring, having a fresh perspective on life help you endure the people who surround you every day? Well, Jesus did this because he saw the bigger picture. Look again at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Listen, sometimes circumstances are endurable, but the people around you aren't as endurable. Now, to be sure, the hostility that Jesus endured included physical beatings, but sometimes the pain of a beating doesn't last as long or hurt as much as the words that someone says to you or about you. Now, I'm sure that none of you know anyone who is a pain to be around. All of you are warm and fuzzy, lovable people, and I'm sure that you hang around and associate with the same. But occasionally, into our lives, comes someone who is either hostile to you or just a pain to be around, and the best, nicest thing you can say is that you endure them. How many of you would have thought that the job that you had wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for the people? that you had to deal with? Don't answer that. There are many passages that we could turn to as we consider Christ having a proper perspective as it relates to dealing with people. But I'm gonna draw our attention to several incidences found in all four of the Gospels, Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, and John 6. But I'm gonna have you turn to Mark 6 because your pastor is preaching out of John 6 and he'll do a much better job of explaining that to you than I can. So as you turn to Mark chapter 6, let me ask you a question. You ever meet somebody who just didn't get it? You try to tell them something and they look at you like you're some kind of weird person or you're speaking a different language? You ever try to talk to somebody who wasn't ready or willing to uh, hear about Jesus Christ and you sometimes get one of those looks? I remember telling one of my employees who was traveling with me to a meeting in Florida, And I had his undivided attention for 20 straight hours driving down I-95. And I talked to him about Christ and what he did on the cross. And when I finished my explanation, he looked at me and he said, well, that's nice. (laughs) He never did get it. If you're going to endure people around you, you have to realize that some people have some misconceptions about Jesus. And in fact, in Mark chapter 6, we're going to find that there are three misconceptions that we can find from this passage. First of all, they think that Jesus was just a man. Now, he's a good man, but just a man. So in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, Jesus and his disciples went to where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And on the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue and had a chance to preach in the synagogue where he grew up. I know what that feels like. Pretty happy about that myself. And so in verse 2, we read that many who heard him were astonished, saying, verse 2, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters with it, here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, Luke tells us that they were filled with wrath, not just offense. And they rose up and they drove him out of town. They brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, I'm not sure how that happened, uh, but I've been to that hilltop several times, and you could get hurt really, really bad, or even die if you were to fall off that cliff. It's a thousand feet drop. People today still think that Jesus was just a man. He was a good man, but he was just a man. To me, it's obvious that they haven't heard or read the historical documents to prove otherwise. Mark tells us then that Jesus, after he left, he went through Galilee, He was preaching the gospel, healing the sick. But then another misconception is that people have about Jesus is that they think that knowing Jesus will fulfill their material needs. So pop down to verse 34 of chapter six. And uh, in verses 34 to 44, Jesus and his disciples are on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. It's early spring. It's Passover time. And so everything was closed, all the stores, all the schools, all the sporting events, and people had come to hear Jesus instead of going down to Jerusalem. Now, they were hungry. There were no falafel stands around, no fast food restaurants. They hadn't, Toby's didn't even exist back then. Uh, They hadn't thought of where or what they would eat, and so one of the disciples found a young lad who provided Jesus with five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus blessed them, and he gave them out to 5,000 men, plus women and children. And they all ate until their stomachs were filled, and they still had 12 baskets of food left over. You remember the incident. The people were impressed, and they were convinced that Jesus might be the Messiah who would do for them what they wanted him to do, and that was perform miracles and provide them bread so they wouldn't have to work. I find that in, chapter, in John chapter 6, verse 15, where it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew him again to the mountain by himself. I think that most of us would have allowed them to make us king or queen. Just saying. But today, some people think that knowing Jesus means that they can sit back, they don't have to do anything, and God's going to take care of all their material needs. I find that a lot of people, in fact, equate God with gov, government, and they let the gov give them money so that they don't have to work. Some think that Jesus was just a man. And others think that he was more than that, and if you would give them anything they want, they would follow him. It's like a genie in a bottle. Whatever they want, he'd give it to them. Well, thirdly, there's a group of people who think that they have everything all figured out. And I'm not sure how else to say that, but in verses 45 to 52 of Mark chapter six, we learn that Jesus went by, uh, left his disciples to get by himself and go pray. He sent them by boat over to the north side of the Sea of Galilee, over to the town of Capernaum. And you remember the story, uh, a storm blew in, the seas were agitated. And if you've ever been in a storm in a small boat, looking up at the top of the next wave, you know exactly how they must have felt. I've had that experience fishing with Paul Robinson and Don Frick in the Delaware Bay, and I can tell you it wasn't pretty. We were all sick. But anyhow, these guys, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., having worked hard rowing all night long, thoroughly exhausted, Jesus comes walking by on top of the water. And if you recall, they thought he was a ghost. They didn't expect him. They thought they were hallucinating. Matthew tells us that Peter was so brash enough that he could figure out that if Jesus could walk on water, maybe so could he. And so he calls out Jesus and he says, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, all right, come. And so he did. He walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. But then he realized that you can't walk on the water and especially when the wind is blowing, creating large waves. And when he realized all that, he began to sink. And then he issued the shortest recorded prayer in the Bible, where he said, Lord, help! How many of us have prayed that prayer in life? And Jesus did. But only Matthew tells us the story uh, of this because he was in the boat watching it. I don't think Peter was really proud of what his actions or his attitudes The other disciples didn't get wet. They didn't sink. Uh, But only Peter did. He thought that he had things all figured out that he could impose upon Jesus to get what he wanted. For a brief time he did, but then he had to pay the price for his impetuosity. You know people who are a lot like this, don't you? They have all the answers, even if they're dead wrong. I heard one woman say, it's not a baby in my womb until I say it is except that the baby in the womb doesn't get a chance to voice his or her opinion. When you take God out of the equation, when you pretend that God doesn't exist, when you think that you are God, the Bible says that you're a fool. That's what Psalm 14.1 says and Psalm 53.1. And I'll just leave it at that, which leads me to the next point. Some people don't understand the truth of the gospel. Now the gospel, the good news is, is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes on him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. It's John 3.16. You all know that. And Jesus proclaimed that before this incident occurred. So it's hard for me to believe that Jesus would not have explained this to his disciples and others during his days of teaching. But if he had, they still didn't get it. In fact, in Mark 6.52, it says that their hearts were hardened. They didn't seem to understand three truths about the gospel. First of all, Spiritual life is not physical life. Now, most people realize there's more to this life than what we see. But the worship of God or gods is not unique to Christians. It's innate within everybody's heart. People hope that there is spiritual life after physical death. But for some reason, people think that they have to do something in order to earn their salvation. And all the religions of the world have a path that must be followed if you want to have a chance for eternal life. Some are really stranger than others. But Jesus said, believe on me and me alone. You ever talk to a person who goes to church, but is spiritually dead, and is convinced that by doing good works or obeying the sacraments of a church, that's sufficient to get them into heaven? Well, if you have, their perspective on life is entirely tied to the physical realm and personal effort. And they've not really come to grips with the fact that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Salvation is not by works, otherwise some of us would boast about it and about how good we are and all we did to deserve it. But spiritual life, secondly, comes from God. Jesus made it perfectly clear that the source of spiritual life is God and not our own efforts. We were all born spiritually dead, and only God can breathe life into a spiritually dead person. None of us can do that on our own. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not something that you or I can achieve. That way, God gets the glory. Jesus said in John 6.65, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Spiritual life comes from God, but spiritual life comes as a result of faith. John 6.47, Jesus said, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And in this one short statement, Jesus says, sums up, what one must do in order to go to heaven? Believe. Believe that Jesus is very God of very God and invite him to come into your life and admit that you're a sinner and you need a savior. That's it. That's all there is. Come to Jesus. Jesus said, come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls." All right, so let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 3, because we're admonished in this verse to consider Christ who endured hostility by sinners against himself. He endured because he had the right perspective on life. You realize that as a child of God, heaven and all of its joy and its glory awaits you. We've heard this one sister this morning who is now there in the presence of the Lord. It's not a paradise as portrayed in Islam filled with wine, women, and other earth fleshly lusts, but it's a place that is reserved for you, and God's word says that heaven is a wonderful place to go. Stories told about an old Pennsylvania Dutchman and his wife who arrived in heaven, and Peter was taking them around and showing them all the beauties and the benefits of heaven. He showed them the golf course, and when asked how much the green fees were, he stated that everything in heaven is free. They went to a banquet room, bigger than Shady Maple, where there was food everywhere. He asked Peter how much it costs to eat there, and Peter said, absolutely nothing. Everything is free for your enjoyment. Then he took them to this mansion, which was to be their home, and the man said, "I, I can't afford to live here, and Peter said, of course you can. It's free. It's yours. The old Dutchman couldn't take it anymore, and he smacked his wife on the arm. Why did you do that, she asked. He said, if it weren't for you and those stupid bran muffins you made me eat, we could have been here years ago. <clears throat> well, can you deal with the circumstances in which you currently find yourself? The answer is yes, you can. God's promise never to give you more than you can handle, which means, unfortunately, you can handle it. Read 1 Corinthians 10.13 sometime and substitute the word trial for temptation, which happens to be the same word in Greek, and see what God has promised. You can handle it. You'll never get more than you can handle He'll provide a way of escape. So consider Christ. Can you deal with the people who are around you who are hostile, verbally abusive, or just a pain? may not be pleasant, but you can deal with it. And when you deal with them having the proper perspective on life, Hebrews 12.3 says that you'll be able to stay strong. The text says, so that you may not grow weary. Well, the way you don't grow weary is you stay strong. We all know that when we are physically strong, we are at our best at fighting off the ailments that come our ways. When we are physically weak, we're more susceptible to all the colds, the flus, the COVIDs that are all around us. And since we know that's true in the physical realm, is it not also true in the spiritual realm? Well, the word that the user, the, that is used by the author is only used two other times in the New Testament. And in each place, it gives us a little bit more enlightenment about what the author is instructing us about staying strong. Now, the first place it's used is over a few pages, and it's in James chapter 5, verse 15. So let's look at that real quick. James chapter 5, and let me read verse 14 and 15 to you. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, the word for sick in English is different than the word for sick in verse 14. Two different words. Verse 14, it refers to one who is feeble, diseased, in a weakened state, physically. They're already in a physically desperate condition. But in verse 15, the word for sick is our word, which is more of a mental state of having to deal with the sickness than it is the physical state of being sick. So in Hebrews, it's translated as weary. In James, it's translated as sick, but not in a physical sense, or else James would have repeated the word that he used in verse 14, which clearly speaks of an illness. So the sickness he's referring to, the weariness, is the thing that accompanies a physical sickness. Have you ever been wearied because of your poor health or a physical condition upon which you have no control? Some of you have suffered for many years with a variety of ailments. Some of us, however, let everybody else know when we are ill because we become miserable creatures. Most men are like that. When we get a cold or a flu, we pull out our wills to make sure that our last requests will be honored. And you women put up with us because, uh, and you humor us by going along and uh, knowing that our frailty in this area is something that we actually have no clue what pain and anguish is all about. Some of you, however, suffer in silence because of your physical condition, and you do whatever you can to allay the pain. But not growing weary with all of this is exactly what Hebrews 12.3 is talking about. Because if you keep a biblical perspective on life, watch this, your ailment is but as a moment when compared to eternity. Even if your ailment takes 100 years, compared to eternity, that's nothing. Consider Christ. He suffered as well. But for the joy that was set before him, eternity, he endured the cross. He stayed strong didn't weary. Now, the other place where the word weary is used is found in Revelation 2, 3. So more, a couple more pages over. And in this passage, Jesus, to the church at Ephesus, is commending the people for having worked hard, stayed pure, and persevered through many trials. And verse 3 says, I know that you have endured patiently and are bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, the King James translates that last word, grown weary, as not fainted. I sort of like that nuance, that nuance not fainted. You ever worked so hard that you actually fainted on the job because of your effort? Probably not. But occasionally you'll see an athlete who gives everything that he has and he literally faints when the game is over. Sometimes we hear our children tell us about how hard they had to work. And I just simply want to ask them if they've worked to the point of physical exhaustion, that you fainted. The answer is probably no. Normally, the stronger you are, the longer and the harder you can work. So in the spiritual realm, how strong are you? Is your body in better condition than your spirit is? Well, if so, you have the wrong perspective on life. Paul made it perfectly clear to Timothy when he wrote 1 Timothy 4.8. He says, while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of of value in every way, because it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So your spiritual condition, its strength, will get you through the difficult times that we all are going to face. When you ignore your spiritual health, you put yourself in a precarious position so that you're not able to stay strong in time of need, but instead you flounder and question, and sometimes people even turn away from God. How much different a person who has a biblical perspective on life, because when we consider Christ and all that he provides, and we allow him to give us the strength and the comfort that only his Holy Spirit can bring, we stay strong. And that's the final phrase of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, it says, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, despair, don't despair. Uh, It's also an interesting phrase because it literally speaks of fainting or the collapsing of your mind, your soul, your psyche. Despair will do that to you. When you despair, you give up hope. You lose heart. You become worthless. When you think all is lost, you begin to sink into despair. But when that happens, consider Jesus and the perspective of life that he had in spite of all the verbal and physical harassment he experienced. He didn't despair because he saw the joy that was set before him, and he endured it all. What's interesting is Jesus used this exact expression when he was concerned about the 5,000 who had no food to eat that we referenced earlier. Both the Matthew and Mark account of that incident used a word. But Jesus said in Matthew 15, 32, he called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. And I'm willing to send, I'm not willing to send them away, hungry, lest they faint on the way. The New International Version translated faint as collapse, lest they collapse on the way. So Jesus used this word to refer to a physical collapse that occurs when one is physically at the point of exhaustion. I don't know if I ever told you about the time that several of us, when we were in Israel, uh we walked through the Judean desert from Jericho to Gibeon to see what it was like for the Israelites at the time of Joshua, to go fight the battle in chapter 10. It's about 40 miles, and uh, the temperature was 115 degrees. And my friend began to suffer heat exhaustion. And although he didn't collapse or faint while he was in the desert, he did collapse before we got him to the hospital. He survived, but it was touch and go for a while. A very Sort of a very scary thing. Physical exhaustion or collapse is bad enough, but you get over it. Mental exhaustion or collapse is even worse, and it lasts longer. I'm not qualified to talk about clinical depression or other forms of severe depression. But this one thing I do know it's not good. I understand that sometimes depression is psychological, and sometimes it's physiological, brought about by the wrong kinds of chemicals in the brain. But other forms of depression can be triggered by negative events that occur in a person's life. But just think if anyone had a reason to be in despair. It was Jesus. He was God. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. And it did affect him. All four of the gospel tells us that while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he agonized to the point of death. And Dr. Luth tells us that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. And yet, he did not despair. He did not give in he did not quit because he had the proper perspective on life and he realized the joy that was still ahead after the pain. Now, the apostle Paul used this word only once in all of his writings, and that's in Galatians 6, 9, where he wrote, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. See the perspective on life that Paul had? Here's a man who was suffered greatly for the cause of Christ to the point of being left for dead after a severe beating. And yet he encourages the church at Galatia, don't give up, don't quit, don't despair. Remember, we have the ultimately most fair judge who awaits us, and he will reward all of those who serve him. And so the writer of Hebrews uses this expression, which the New American Standard translates as don't lose heart. But it's literally don't let your mind your soul or your psyche faint or collapse, and that's my encouragement to you today. We can and must hang in there, because in Hebrews 12, 4, it says, in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, yet Christ did. A biblical perspective on life encourages those of you who are young mothers, because life is more than changing diapers, warming bottles finding baby formula wherever you can, and rocking babies to sleep. It's providing the nurturing for a life that God has entrusted to you to raise for his glory. A biblical perspective on life encourages those of you who are students and you are engaged in the relentless pursuit of the truth through your strenuous studies. It's the foundation of your future as your whole life is at stake. A biblical perspective on life encourages those who are in business, who are struggling through a downturn in the economy. It brings hope and the promise of a brighter day in the future. Biblical perspective on life encourages those of you who have come to your golden years, concerned about your health and wondering what is in store for you. It assures you of God's protection and perfect plan for your life and the promise of the joy that is set before you when he calls you home to be with him. You might ask, how do you get this biblical perspective on life? Well, look with me one last time at Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. But the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame. He's seated at the right hand of God, the throne of God. So consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's how you get a biblical perspective on life. Keep looking at Christ. Consider him, and your problems will pale in significance. Have you been distracted and lost a proper perspective on life? You need to get it back? I think we can. For Jesus said in John 16, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you're gonna have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. You will know no peace until you know the Prince of Peace. And he invites you to come to him for he awaits you with open arms. So let's get a biblical perspective on life, and let's keep looking at Jesus, shall we? Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us the encouragement to keep looking at Jesus. He had things a lot rougher than we'll ever have them. Uh, We think the problems that we have are really big, and they are to us. But in light of eternity, in light of what you've had to go through, they pale in significance. So we can deal with it. We can. We can go on, and I just pray that you'll allow us through the power of your Holy Spirit to consider what Jesus did, follow him, and therefore we can endure all the situations and circumstances of life that you throw at us. And as we do that, we will actually bring glory to you because of the way that your Spirit has worked in our lives. Pray those things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in his name we pray. Thank you so much brother. Well that was a fantastic message wasn't it? Something that each and every